Hello and welcome to the February 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name's Colin Yeo. This month I'm looking at some legal developments with Brexit. I'm going to review no less than three Supreme Court decisions on immigration, nationality and detention. There have also been a few bits of case law on the points-based system. I'm going to look at the worrying trend in Tier 2 um, visa applicants being turned away. There's a couple of new Courts of Appeal and Upper Tribunal authorities touching on procedural issues which are worth being aware of, and also a few other cases on a range of different areas, all important in their own way. The material in the podcast is all drawn from the February 2018 blog posts on free movement. If you'd like to claim CPD points for reading the material, listening to the podcast, then please sign up at www.freemovement.org.uk slash training. Starting first with Brexit issues, at the very end of February we saw the European Commission publishing a draft legal text for Brexit withdrawal agreement. Now this is pretty much the final version as we saw later in March and the most interesting development was probably on the, um, depending on, on, on who you are, you call it the implementation period or the transition period, same thing basically. Um, EU citizens who arrive in the UK during that time um, were basically wanting, the, the, the EU was wanting them to have um, full rights to acquire permanent residence and also to have family members join them. The UK was quite resistant on these issues, um, but ultimately, as we were to later see in March, um, the UK conceded. So there was a, a significant um, change there on what the UK had been saying was going to happen and what ultimately did happen, um, which wasn't too much of a surprise to those who were following it. Um, this is one for the lawyers, but it, it, it's an interesting one. The UK had been talking about settled status um, right from the start. They, they called it settled status, but said quite quite clearly that this was going to be indefinite leave to remain. And it's gradually emerged that that's actually not going to be the case. And in the draft EU legal text, we saw this new settled status being referred to as permanent residence, as defined in Articles 16, 17 and 18 of the Qualification Directive sorry, of the Assistance Directive, uh, Directive 2004-38EC. So that, that's an interesting legal change. So it means that um, EU citizens won't fall under UK domestic law as such. They'll be under a kind of inherited version of EU law, even though EU law, generally speaking, won't actually apply. So it, it, it's an interesting legal distinction, and it'll be interesting to see what the ramifications of that are in the long run. Um, we also saw a, a few other um, bits of movement on interesting issues for the future. So um, there's a specific provision for administrative foul-ups by the Home Office extending the time that EU citizens have to apply for settled status. Um, there's something on the agreement being relied upon directly in British courts, which is important. And there's also the UK agreements to set up an independent body to monitor the implementation and application of the bits about citizens' rights, which is effectively a replacement for the EU Commission, which would exist in the UK only. Unfortunately, I have to say there is no equivalent to that to protect British citizens in the EU, which should be a bone of contention, but um, but doesn't seem to be. The UK is essentially abandoning um, British citizens who, who are in the UK, as far, who are in the EU, as far as we can see. Um, so I, I think that, that's all we really wanted to cover on, on Brexit for now, because this is really sticking to um, February developments. We saw more to come in March, but it was um, heralded, shall we say, by the, uh, the publication of the EU draft agreement in February. Okay, uh, mentioning another development on Brexit, there's a Scottish case called Whiteman and Others against the Advocate General, reference 2018, 
um, CSIH18. Now, this is a challenge which is being sponsored, I think, by the um, Good Law Project, and it's about whether Article 50 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union um, can be unilaterally revoked by the UK now that it's been served. Article 50 is the legal mechanism for leaving the EU. It creates this two-year countdown period that we're all familiar with, and there's been some discussion about whether um, the UK could unilaterally withdraw its notification um, if it wanted to or, or, or not. Um, it's one of those issues where lawyers have got opinions on both sides. Those opinions are all valid and we won't know unless a court decides, basically. And this is an attempt to get a court to decide. So it's a case that's been brought in Scotland and the court of session was basically um, being asked whether it would permit the case to go ahead. I think it would be fair to say that the court had misgivings about the way that the way the way that the um, case was being put, but nevertheless decided to grant permission anyway. So that's going forward to uh, full consideration, and we'll keep you posted on any developments. Moving on now to the trio of Supreme Court decisions. The first of these is the case of SM Algeria against Entry Clearance Officer, reference 2018, UKSC 9. Now, this one isn't a final decision, but the Supreme Court decided to refer quite an important question um, to the European Court of Justice. And this is about um, whether an informally um, adopted child falls within um, the direct family members provisions of European law, the Citizens Directive, or the uh, extended family member provisions, the other family member provisions. So it's basically do they fall within Article 2 of the Citizens Directive, which is direct family, or Article 3 of the Citizens Directive, which is um, other family members. So it, it, it's an interesting one, and um, obviously it, it has slightly time-limited uh, implications perhaps because um, because we're, we're all set to be leaving the EU and all that um, but in the meantime it's an interesting one and it's revealed a couple of things already one of which is that the Supreme Court agrees that um, what this is one for the lawyers but that the, the Sala case in which the tribunal decided that other family members extended family members did not have a right of appeal was wrongly decided um, that is very cold comfort indeed though since the 2016 EA regulations were introduced and the right of appeal was, certainly in my view, um, definitively withdrawn at that point. Um, although that, that is an issue that's been referred to the, the um, Course of Justice of the European Union in a case called Bangor. So I, I guess we, we really ought to wait for um, final result from that to be to be absolutely sure. But I'd, I'd be quite surprised if Bangor did decide that there was some sort of domestic um, right of appeal that was provided for by, by European law. Um, the um, the other thing that's that's interesting is that the... EEA regulations, the UK regulations, are effectively incorrectly framed by referring to um, relatives as opposed to family members. So this is Article 3, Other Family Members. It talks about family members, whereas the UK implementation of that in the EEA regulations requires the person to be a relative. And as Lady Hale says in the um, short judgment in this case in which the referral to the CJEU is made, family member is a wider term than relative as it is well capable of including people who are not related by consanguinity or affinity. So that's an interesting one that has immediate implications as well, um, but otherwise we're going to have to wait to find out from the CJU in due course um, whether an informally adopted child is a direct family member or an other family member. Okay, moving on to the second Supreme Court decision. This one is the case called Advocate General of Scotland against Remain. 
um, R-O-M-E-I-N, reference 2018, UKSC6. And this one's a very interesting one for nationality law geeks, especially, and particularly um, for those who might be beneficiaries of this judgment, because it's a very important one on historic gender discrimination in British nationality law. Um, if, you, if you want to go into the, the details, I, I recommend the post by um, John Vassiliou, um, which, which goes into the, the details of this in, in, in some depth. But essentially, um, British citizenship law was historically um, gender biased in that the children of um, women were treated differently to the children of men. And there was a particular problem that the UK has subsequently tried to address, but rather ineffectively, essentially, in, in later legislation for what um, John refers to in his post as being double descent cases, which is where you've got a um, British citizen um, who moves abroad and then they give birth to a child and then that um, child gives birth to another child and it's about whether that, that, that grandchild effectively of the original British citizen um, is allowed to claim British citizenship or not. And because of the way that the um, Act of Parliament that had tried to put this right was framed, there was a real problem with this because um, there was a requirement for consular registration which was effectively impossible to meet because um, officials at that time would have been unwilling to have registered a, a child's birth and that effectively put paid to the opportunity to reclaim British citizenship that the child would otherwise have been entitled to um, by this practical problem, which is that they could never, their parents could never realistically have, have, have done what the law required them to have done. So the Supreme Court looks at this and um, essentially decides that the, the legislation should be read as if the requirement didn't exist um, in some cases. So it opens up an opportunity for registration as a British citizen for a, a significant number of, of people. A lot of them probably won't know about this. They probably won't be interested in this because they've already got lives that are completely well established in another country and they've got no interest in claiming British citizenship. But potentially quite a significant number of people are affected by this. And the Supreme Court judgment is very good news for them because it opens up the possibility of registering as a British citizen. Uh, at the moment, that registration would be subject to the good character requirement. Um, but there are moves afoot to implement an earlier um, Supreme Court decision in a case called Johnson, reference 2016 UKSC 56, um, which held that it was unlawful to impose the good character requirement, which wouldn't have been imposed um, if there had been no gender inequality in the first place. And, and there's a, when I say the moves to a foot to, to implement that, uh, essentially the, the government is consulting as I speak on um, whether they, they can rectify that and just remove the good character requirement by a sort of fast-track piece of legislation under the Human Rights Act. So hopefully we'll see that happening um, later this year and that other piece of uh, gender discrimination will also be abolished. Right, the third of these um, trio of cases from the Supreme Court is B. Algeria against Secretary of State for the Home Department, reference 2018, UKSC5. And this is all about unlawful detention and bail conditions and whether a person who can't be removed from the country can still be lawfully detained or have bail conditions imposed on them. And it, it, this is a tricky case to, to, to write up and talk about because it's probably redundant, essentially. Um, it's quite an inspiring judgment. There's lots of lovely words about how important the right to liberty is and how legislation should be read restrictively, which um, restricts that right. But the fact is that since the um, facts of the case arose, the law has changed and the Supreme Court was adjudicating here 
on the old version of the legislation, which has subsequently been replaced. So it, it probably has very little practical application. And it also dodges um, a very important legal and frankly constitutional issue about um, the way that that later legislation was implemented. So the later legislation is the uh, introduction of a, a new type of detention or new statutory framework for detention called um, immigration bail introduced by the um, Immigration Act 2016 at Schedule 10. And that was also accompanied by um, further legislation in, in, in the 2016 Act, uh, which specifically, um, this is section 61 specifically, which um, says at, at subsection 5 that the uh, new provisions are to be treated as always having had effect. Now that's retrospective legislation. Um, anybody who's been through law school will tell you that that's generally speaking a very bad idea. Um, but the Supreme Court dodges this issue um, by by just saying that nobody wanted to, the, the, the Secretary of State didn't want to rely on it. Now presumably that was because the issue hadn't been argued in the lower courts because that section hadn't been passed at the time that argument was occurring in the lower courts. But in terms of the utility of this Supreme Court judgment, again, it, it further undermines it because the, the judgment will only be of interest to another migrant who's in a similar situation to um, the gentleman in this case, whose name we don't know, but was from um, Algeria. Um, and his problem was that he couldn't be removed because it would be a breach of his human rights to be removed to Algeria. The Home Office nevertheless um, imposed bail conditions on him under the old legislation. There will be quite a limited number of other migrants in a similar position who also had bail conditions imposed on them who could potentially claim damages for that. But in their cases, um, they'll have an argument also about whether this Section 61 of the 2016 Act prevents them from bringing that claim. And that's just not dealt with um, here in this Supreme Court decision. So uh, it, it's all very interesting from an academic point of view, but it probably doesn't have very much real world utility, unfortunately. Moving on now to a few points-based system um, issues. First of these is a case called R. Khan against Secretary of State for the Home Department. It's 2018 EWHC 105 admin. And it's quite an interesting case for sort of illustrating how the resident labour market test works for um, tier two sponsor licences and um, employees. Now, the, the, the main requirements, but not the only requirements of the resident labour test are that a position has to be advertised for at least 28 days in two locations. And the sponsor who's advertising has to maintain evidence of the advertisements as prescribed in the guidance. You've got to keep a record of the interview notes for all candidates, including copies of CVs and the reasons why any particular candidate wasn't invited to the interview. And then following the interview, you've got to keep the notes which record the reasons why a settled work candidate was not offered a position. Now, in this case, it's an NHS doctor's surgery and they um, advertised for a um, office manager, I think it was, and received 42 applications. The management team took the top five, listed them for interview, discarded the rest. Only two of the candidates turned up on the day, one of whom was the existing part-time business development manager, and of the two candidates, the existing employee was judged to be the best um, for the practice. But according to the Home Office, that wasn't enough, basically. And in the end, um, the, the court upheld that decision and held that it was lawful. So a, a fairly sort of harsh decision because it wasn't alleged that there was any kind of um, bad faith or the recruitment wasn't a charade or anything like that. It was simply that the doctor's surgery hadn't properly applied the guidance and hadn't fully appreciated what was necessary in order to comply with the resident labour 
um, resident labour market test. So um, in interesting case from that point of view. Moving on now to another one, this was on students, and the, the, the facts of this are, are very sad. It's a case called Patel, and reference 2018 EWCA Civ 229. Now this is a student who made an application for an extension of his Tier 4 leave based on a confirmation of acceptance of studies, CAS, that had been issued by his college. So he made the application, and while the application was pending, without giving any notice or any reason, the college withdraws the CAS. Now that leads the Home Office to refuse, but Mr Patel only finds out that this is a problem when he actually gets the refusal through from the Home Office. Um, the college refused to give any reasons why they had withdrawn the CAS, and the college also didn't refund the £3,500 in course fees that had been paid, nor of course the immigration application fees which had been paid to the Home Office. The sponsor ultimately lost the licence and since closed. So the student is left in a really appalling situation really by this um, withdrawal of the CAS. No immigration status, loss of the um, college place, loss of the fees, lots of it, unnecessary expenditure and so on. Um, the, the student tried to argue that there was a duty on the Home Office to give, grant 60 days of leave to enable the students to try and find a new place at a new college in that time. And that argument was based on a, an oldish case called, also called Patel, reference 2011 UKUT 211 IAC. The tribunal rejected that based on a later case, EK Ivory Coast, and the Court of Appeal ultimately basically agrees, holding that because the um, refusal wasn't one that was caused by the Home Office, it was caused by the College, there was no remedy against the Home Office. So um, the Home Office had refused because there was no CAS. In the earlier Patel case, the 2011 one, the Home Office had withdrawn the sponsor licence causing the refusal and in those situations the Home Office has to do something about it and grant 60 days, but where the um, an injustice caused to the student is, is caused by the College itself, um, then there's no remedy against the Home Office essentially. Um, last bit of news on points-based system is that the visa cap was hit again in February, which seems to be becoming a regular event now, and it means that employers aren't able to recruit um, all of the Tier 2 workers that they want to. Basically the quota has kicked in, only candidates earning a salary above a certain level um, will be successful. So um, interesting to watch that and watch this post, um, watch this watch this space, should we say, um, for further developments on that, see if it leads to any change of policy um, and whether it continues to be a problem in future. Right, I want to turn now to a, a difficult case. Um, this involves um, a, a, an Afghan man called Samim Bigzad. It's re for some reason his case is actually um, referred to anonymously but with no anonymity order so it's permitted to name him and we chose not to do so in the original post but there's no legal reason why he can't be named. Um, the case is R.S.B. Afghanistan against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWCA Civ 215. Now in the Big Zad case this was um, something of a, a cause celebre in the um, media because he was removed to Afghanistan, there was an order requiring his return to the UK. Um, on the face of it, uh, according to the information that was available at the time, the Home Office appeared to be in breach of that order, potentially the Secretary of State personally it was in breach, and ultimately he was returned to the UK. The Home Office um, took this case up to the Court of Appeal, and ultimately the Court of Appeal holds that there was no contempt, and in fact is quite critical of the lawyers for Samim Bigzad. Um, both solicitor and counsel at that time. 
Um, there's no suggestion anywhere that anything dishonest had happened or anything of that nature whatsoever. However, um, the Court of Appeal decides that the lawyers had not acted um, fully properly um, in the way that they'd handled the case, had accidentally uh, made representations that turned out not quite to be accurate, um, and it, it makes uncomfortable reading, shall we say, um, from that point of view. So it's an interesting sort of end to that um, case. And it's also, I think, an interesting illustration of the hazard of taking on these kinds of cases at the last minute. Because I think in the Big Zad case, um, the solicitors had only been instructed literally the day before. Presumably, they didn't have a full file at that time when they were trying to prevent the removal. And of course, a person who's who's being removed in that situation is often going to be genuinely desperate, they're not necessarily going to be completely forthcoming with their lawyer, and of course they won't necessarily fully understand their own case anyway, so even if they were giving all of the information accurately to a, a solicitor, um, that might well not be an accurate representation of, of what's happened because the client may well have misunderstood something. Um, so it's science reading, it's an important piece of reading as well for anybody who is involved in these urgent injunction applications. Moving on to a tribunal case on costs. This is called Thapa and Others. Costs, General Principle, Section 9 Review, um, 2018, UKUT 54 IAC. And this in involves um, disgraced former Judge Majid, who in this case hadn't appeared, apparently done anything wrong at all. Um, through no fault of his own, nobody had informed him that an application for an adjournment had been made in a case, and he then proceeded to dismiss the application. An appeal was pursued, Home Office reserved its position as it seen no evidence of the adjournment request at the time that they were reviewing the case. The appellants argued that the Home Office stance was unreasonable contact, conduct and the Home Office should have conceded the case. President Lane disagrees and basically tells us that judges should be extremely cautious about um, exercising the costs power, um, which is um, you know, backs up previous cases, including the Cancino case. So not much of a change there, and it was a fairly should we say optimistic argument I think that had been pursued in that case anyway. Okay moving on to another case this is Court of Appeal and it's an important one on Papashvili which is a case about medical treatment cases where somebody is receiving life-sustaining treatment here in the UK they say that they won't be able to receive that treatment if they're removed to their home country and that that will cause them suffering and potentially um, premature death. Now the threshold for these cases was long thought to be that in N against UK, either the House of Lords or the Strasbourg judgment. There were differences um, between those two judgments, but both were extremely harsh, essentially. So the, the, the differences didn't really make much difference, shall we say. Um, in a later judgment called Papishvili against Belgium, the Strasbourg court revisited the test in Strasbourg in the N against UK test and essentially softens the test somewhat, moving it away from just risk of death um, to also um, the, the experience of a likely rapid experience of intense suffering after removal. And that's not much of a softening, but but it is a softening. And in one previous case, the upper tribunal had decided that it was bound to follow the House of Lords case. Um, but in this case, in the Court of Appeal, that argument doesn't seem to have been considered or run. It, it certainly doesn't seem to have held any water anyway. And um, the Court of Appeal says that, yes, it can take that um, Papishvili case into account and that it does modify 
um, the approach to take in these Article 3 cases, um, but that it's not much of a modification. And there's also some um, caution is urged, I think it would be probably the right way of putting it, by Lord Justice Sales, who gives judgment in this case, saying that it would be better if strong fact cases were pursued in any appeal up to the Supreme Court against whether the Court of Appeal is right in this case. So I don't think I actually um, gave you the case reference when I started talking about this one. It's AM Zimbabwe and another against Secretary of State for the Home Department, reference 2018 EWCA Civ 64. So it's an extremely important case if you're dealing with any of these kind of Article 3 medical treatment removal cases. Okay, moving on to another interesting Court of Appeal case. This is RVC against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWCA Civ 57. Now, this is an interesting one in policy terms because VC um, had, he, he suffered from mental illness essentially. He was bipolar and psychotic. He was detained for a fairly substantial period in 2014 15 and ultimately he was transferred to a psychiatric hospital and sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Now, he brought a claim uh, asserting essentially that no reasonable adjustments had been made by the Home Office um, under the duty which was imposed by the Equality Act 2010. And the argument was in short that if um, he hadn't suffered from mental health problems and was of full capacity, then he could have triggered the only independent reviewing mechanism of detention there is, which is basically an application for bail. But because he lacked capacity and he was mentally ill, he wasn't able to trigger that review and that was a real problem for him and in fact it was effectively discriminatory. The Home Office seemed to argue that she had no power to appoint um, advocates for mentally ill detainees, that it would breach a detainee's confidentiality to do so and that it would cost far too much and those were the only um, suggestions, concrete suggestions that had been made by VC so the Home Office was saying that there was no breach of the duty. The Court of Appeal quite strongly disagrees and um, finds that essentially mentally ill detainees, particularly those lacking capacity, have been and are being discriminated against by the Home Office in the way that they're detained and um, essentially it's, it's going to be up to the Home Office to devise um, a new way of dealing with these cases and to show that reasonable adjustment has been made. And I think before leaving this, it's it, this is it's an interesting case because it, it highlights one of the themes that we've seen in recent years with unlawful detention where we've seen some fairly substantial periods of detention, some fairly substantial awards of damages, even some findings of breach of Article 3 by detaining people um, who, who, who do have mental illnesses. And this explains why, because the Home Office hasn't put in safe, adequate safeguards and has been essentially discriminating against them. Right, moving on to um, another Court of Appeal case, PK Garner against Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2018 EWCA Civ 9-8. Now, this is an interesting one, again, on a kind of policy-type level. Um, obviously, it, it's, as you'll hear in a moment, it's a good result for the individual, but it also has wider ramifications. So this was somebody who um, the Home Office had refused to grant leave to, even though there was a finding that they had been a victim of trafficking. And the Court of Appeal picks up on... Um, the difference between the Secretary of State's policy, um, which requires personal circumstances, although not meeting the criteria of any of the other categories listed, to be so compelling that it's considered appropriate to grant some, some form of leave. And the Trafficking Convention itself, um, which just says that leave should be granted where 
it's considered necessary. And in short, the court holds that the Home Office has fettered its discretion and isn't fully respecting the requirements of the Trafficking Convention. So good result for that particular individual, the Home Office has to reconsider, and also a good result in a wider sense as well. Now, the final case to deal with is um, an interesting one in the High Court. This is R. Safari and another against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWHC 287 Admin. And this one is something that concerns sham marriages and marriages of convenience. And um, there's an interesting post by Naf Gablicki who looks at the shift in terms of judicial understanding of what a marriage of convenience is and the shift from it being um, essentially something where the sole purpose of the marriage was to um, avoid immigration requirements to being the predominant purpose. And that kind of softening in the test is, is problematic because in this case, one of the reasons why the couple had married was because it would ha be of assistance to the, one of the parties' immigration status, but it wasn't the only reason, and it was a genuine relationship. So uh, it was quite controversial that the court ultimately concluded that actually this was a marriage of convenience and therefore wasn't effective in EU law. Now, that, that feels like it's probably incorrect in European law, frankly, um, whether it's being challenged in that particular case, I don't know, but certainly it's an issue which is ripe for further litigation and further challenge. Okay, I hope that's been helpful. That's it for this month, and I'll be back next month. Goodbye.